This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, welcome back. It's good to see you for this for this last part. I hope that uh, GYC experience has been a blessing for you and that you've been taking the time to, to think and pray about whatever it is the Holy Spirit has been laying on your heart. All right, we're going to uh, move on here with the second part of the title, The Holy Spirit, The Sanctuary, The Holy Scriptures, Practical Foundations of Worship. And we're going to look at the 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 other foundation of the sanctuary and then notice the connection between the sanctuary and music uh, as well as maybe touch on some other some other things as well so let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we begin this last session our father in heaven lord we're here because you've called us to be here we thank you for the three angels messages we thank you for the commission that you have given to us and I pray that we might realize more and more as we've had a chance to listen that there are great things at stake when we think about changing, manipulating how we worship. It could be our very foundations, our three angels' messages that get compromised. So help us, Lord, grant us the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds. And as you convict us and lead us and guide us, give us courage, Lord, to move in the right direction. We thank you for hearing our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn with me to Revelation chapters 4, uh, well, first chapter 4. We'll look briefly at chapter 4 and 5. And basically, I, I want to just demonstrate that this is obviously a scene that is taking place in the heavenly sanctuary. So in Revelation chapter 4, you find verse, in verse 1, it says, after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard uh, was, as it were, of the trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be here, uh, must be hereafter. And in Revelation chapter three, verses seven to eight, there is a, there is an open door there. And so the church was moving from the church of, uh, the church of Philadelphia, then to the church of Laodicea, and the door that was open was the, the door to the most holy place that was open. And some people believe that this is actually a most holy place setting. If that's not your understanding, well, just bear with me for a moment, and then we can, you know, we can, uh, we can uh, study and debate and argue later. In uh, chapter 4, verse 2, just to reiterate that this is in the heavenly sanctuary, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set... Where was that throne set? In, in, in heaven is where it says, and one sat on the throne. In chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, and the four beasts, or the four living creatures, had each of them six wings. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, holy, holy, holy. We can reference that back to the four, uh, the four cherubim in the most holy place in Solomon's temple. Now you have the lamps, which is the most problematic for those that may believe this is a most holy place setting. In verse 5, it says, And out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices, which were the seven lamps of fire. Notice it says, Before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You see, on this, on, when the sanctuary in the Day of Atonement was, was, uh, had arrived, that door was now open. And so those lamps then were kind of positioned before the throne. 
there is obviously a call to worship here. It says in verse 9 to 11, it says, When those beasts or those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You have an emphasis here on God the Creator. The Father being worshipped here on the throne. He is the Creator of all things. And again, it cites the, the, the fact that He is the Creator as the reason for why worship is due to Him. God is holy. He is separate and distinct. Just as we were talking up front here, uh, uh, this is a wonderful computer, but uh, those who made it are transcendent to it. Uh, the human brain is much more complicated than this machine in every way. We are not somehow, in a panentheistic sense, within this computer. We are transcendent to it. That's what creation implies. But yet pantheism, panentheism implies the opposite. And that has dire effects for salvation and for worship. Um, this call to, of course, ethical holiness is destroyed by Darwinism, of course. You see, because if I evolved from, uh, from primates and amoebas and all those types of things, then why are you getting on me for behaving like, like one of these things? If I'm an animal, then I'm going to act like an animal. Interestingly enough, holiness is mentioned nine times in Leviticus chapter 16, which is the chapter on, on the Day of Atonement. There's obviously a call to worship here. Notice that this is a solemn occasion. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, out of the throne proceed lightnings, thunderings, voices. The instruments, for those of you that were here in previous sessions, the instruments are associated with the Hebrew temple service. You have a trumpet call in verse 1 that we read. You have the harp that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, when he had taken the book, this is the lamb, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of orders, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing, it says, a new song. Verse 9, they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now let me make a comment here. There's nothing wrong with something new. Amen? As a matter of fact, if you think that this presentation is against creativity, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we ought to be able to sing a new song every day because we ought to be having an experience, a new experience every day. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with something being written that is contemporary. And so for those of you that are musicians that are listening either here or that will be listening later on, if we understand this framework of the sanctuary and its relationship to how we ought to worship, then we can really play, pray, Lord, help me to create the kind of music that will draw people closer to you and more firmly established in your faith and in your righteousness and ready for your return. They will be able to translate that. I was talking with some young men the other day. And, you know, in other religions like, uh, like, like Hinduism or Buddhism, 
they require you to study their philosophy before you play their music because of the intimate connection between the two. And this is something whereby we've dropped the ball. You see, the Levites were the servants of God. They were the, they were the, they were the pastors, the ordained ministers back, back then. And they were the ones that were also doing the music. What that should translate into today is, look, if our musicians do not understand the three angels' messages, if they do not understand the sanctuary, if they do not understand the great controversy, if they don't understand the relationship between that and how we ought to worship, what do you think is going to come out of their creativity? We're all creatures of our environment. What you listen to then from the world will ultimately get pumped out through your music. And you will have no filter to decide, I wonder what is glorifying God and what is not, other than your own motivation. And as good as that is, friends, that's not enough. It's not enough. Other indications that this is a sanctuary scene, of course, there is incense. We read about that. They fall down and worship. You get the idea that this is, this is holy, this is reverent, but yet, I mean... Th- they're beside themselves with joy as well. Um, look, at verse, look at verse 14, 13 and 14, at the conclusion of this, this worship. It says, Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Does not, not, does not that sound like there's some joy there, friends? So you have the proper mingling of reverence, awe, fear, and joy, and praise. And and the worship service ought to combine those. And so our musicians and those that lead out ought to have that in mind and say, how can we create, for lack of a better word, how can we have this kind of environment? What can I do with my music in order to to make sure that that this is happening? And when you use the syncopated rhythms, it completely obliterates that. Also, they're clothed in white, and they have golden crowns, and they cast them at, at, at Jesus' feet. And the 24 elders prostrate themselves before him, so holy and reverent. God because there's an intimate relationship, an interrelationship between God and salvation and worship. You know, what does the first angel's message say? It says, worship him that made heaven and earth. Um, and also, if you look closely at that first angel's message, Revelation chapter six, uh, 14, verse 7, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. To make Revelation 14, verse 7 a very short Bible study, you need to connect that with Daniel 8, 14 and realize that something significant happened up in heaven. The hour of his judgment has come. Now, how many other Christians have the judgment hour message as part of their plan of salvation? None. Which means that they have a skewed focus on the cross, and the cross shouldn't be separated from his work in the heavenly sanctuary. In other words, if our focus on the cross is done in such a way that that sanctuary doesn't exist and we don't know what's going on up there, 
That's really not a true focus on the cross. The cross will not do that. And so God here is defined in the context of the sanctuary, the great controversy theme, actions. Again, some state that this is a day of atonement, most holy place seen. Jesus is about to be coronated. He's about to be crowned and come again. Worship, the pattern, it must lead us to Christ's work in heaven. The harp is the only accompanying instrument. I'm going to talk about the implications of that. The pattern for worship comes from the sanctuary. There's a proper blend of reverence and praise. Now, let's just compare the two for a minute. Compare the golden calf and the sanctuary on various levels, all right? Now, think about God. The golden calf, indistinguishable from nature. Where do we get that from? Up, make us gods. Okay, well, if God is nature and nature is God, wow, okay, that's a real skewed doctrine of God. In the sanctuary, God is still holy. He's still transcendent from nature. Um, look at worship. At the golden calf, the worship appeals to the lusts of the flesh, entertaining and irreverent. Look at the sanctuary. The proper combination of reverence and awe with joy and praise. The worship at the golden calf was syncretistic. That meant that it combined Egyptian and biblical elements all together in a smorgasbord. Well, in the sanctuary, that worship is totally revealed. It comes from God. The blueprints came from him. Look at the musical characteristics between the two. At the golden calf, it was, it was loud, but not just loud. Syncopated rhythms sounding like the noise of war. In the sanctuary, because you have string accompaniment, it's got to be melody and harmony. You know, if the, if the heavenly principles of, of worship music were syncopated rhythms, you must admit that the harp is a poor choice in order to express that. Now that doesn't mean that you can take, that you can't take a harp and play some blues and rock to it. Oh yeah, you can do that. Sure you can put a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, you're capable of doing it. But by origin and design, no, that's not what the harp was made for. Melodic and harmonic instruments are, are, are emphases are primary. Now, look at the worshipers at the golden calf. They are out of control. Lewd bodily movements sensuality in the sanctuary they're clothed and in their right minds god's reaction at the golden calf i never read that to you in the in the previous session exodus chapter 32 verse 7 if you really want to know what god's reaction is to the syncopated rhythms to the entertainment based type of worship it's found in exodus chapter 32 in verse 7 it says and the lord said unto moses this is a little humorous go get thee down for thy people. What did he say? <laughs> he didn't say my people, right? He said thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. It leads to corruption. That's what God said. And furthermore, he said, you know what? I'm divorcing you. Because my people wouldn't do this. My people wouldn't misrepresent me in this way. Now, let's take a look, uh, a look at the, the role of the sanctuary in worship. Now, just to reiterate something that I stated yesterday, the symbols that God has revealed to us in the sanctuary 
by the Holy Spirit. We'd looked at that in Exodus chapter 31, verse, verse uh, 3. It was the Spirit that inspired Bezalel in order to construct the tabernacle. And when the children of Israel were all done, God recognized it by manifesting his glory there. Similarly, in First Chronicles chapter 28, it was by the Holy Spirit that this plan was enacted. And so, what would happen? You know, there's a two-apartment ministry in that sanctuary. Well, what would happen if we said, okay, well, let's just make it one? Well, then, in, as far as our understanding of uh, salvation is concerned, we'd become Roman Catholic and evangelical. I'm not sure if you're following me on that. So, I hope that you are. Because something new happened in 1844 on October 22nd. That's part of the plan of salvation. That's, that, that's part of the atonement. All right? Something new happened. And if that's not a part of our understanding of the plan of salvation, obviously it'll affect our worship. The point I'm trying to make here is if God revealed it as a two apartment ministry, if you change that, you are also then changing your understanding of salvation. If you change the animal that was, that was required to be slaughtered at the altar and change it from a lamb to a tiger, that tiger is not going down very easily. But if you read Isaiah 53, you know why the lamb was chosen. He invested certain parts of his creation with certain qualities and God knew how this animal would react. That doesn't mean that Jesus is reduced to a lamb. It means that there are some aspects of the lamb that are reflecting part of his character and part of the way things turned out. You replace that lamb with something else like a tiger, it's not going to work. Now, getting to the strings, the same thing happens there. If God revealed every part of it, it must mean then that melody and harmony must be primary. You see, because if you can compare the strings to the roof and the wall, it's connected to the foundation. Once that sanctuary foundation was laid, then God also revealed the instruments that were to be used. So look past the instrument, just like we have looked past the symbols which point to the reality. Look past the instrument. Some people will say, well, pastor, does that mean we all got to play harps now? No, you're missing the point. Or does that mean, like in certain parts of the Protestant Reformation, where they did away with all instruments because they thought they were all too sensual? That would also today miss the point because you can get an a cappella group up here of four to six voices and you can pump those syncopated rhythms through those a cappella voices. Are you following me? So look beyond the instrument to what the purpose and function of that instrument is and what it should convey. It conveys, if you're choosing a harp, that melody and harmony are primary. I'm going to read some interesting passages from the Spirit of Prophecy uh, regarding Ellen White's experience um, as she was transported to heaven. Hopefully I can get out of this. Let's see. Oh, okay. Yes. And I'll give you the reference in just a minute. And you won't fail to see the emphasis. The uh, music can be a great power for good, yet we do not make the most of this branch of worship. The singing is generally done from impulse or to meet special cases, and at other times those who sing are left to blunder along. 
and the music loses its proper effect among the minds of those present. Just before I go on, anything worth doing for God is worth doing well. Amen? Music should have, these are the three qualities that we're looking for. Beauty, pathos, and power. So let the musicians take that and translate that. Let the voices be lifted in songs of praise and devotion. Call to your aid, if practicable, instrumental music. And let the glorious what? Harmony ascend to God. This is from the voice of speech and song, as most of these quotes are from. Great improvement can be made in singing. Some think that the louder they sing, the more music they make. But noise is not music. Good singing is like the music of the birds, subdued and what? Melodious. Voice and speech and song, page 415. I have been shown the order, the perfect order of heaven, and have been enraptured as I listened to the perfect music there. After coming out of vision, the singing here has sounded very harsh and discordant. I have seen companies of angels who stood in a hollow square. Everyone having what? A harp of gold. At the end of the harp was an instrument to turn to, uh, to turn to set the harp or change the tunes. Their fingers did not sweep over the strings carelessly, but they touched different strings to produce different sounds. There is one angel who always leads, who first touches the harp and strikes the note. Then all join in the rich, perfect music of heaven. It cannot be described. It is what? Melody. Heavenly. Divine. While from every countenance beams the image of Jesus, shining with glory unspeakable. Now, did, were those things that Ellen White saw in her real? Or were they just a figment of her 19th century imagination? That's the question you must ask yourself. Was it real, or did she just see what she wanted to see? Perhaps if maybe one of you were translated up there, you would say, I, I heard the music, and I saw the trap set, and it was awesome. No, friends. What she saw was real. It was not produced by her own culture or her own background. Let those men and women who are satisfied with their dwarfed, crippled condition in divine things be suddenly transported to heaven and for an instant witness the high, the holy state of perfection that ever abides there. Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enchanting music in melodious strains, rising in honor of God and the Lamb. Again, voice and speech and song, page 428. The influence of the holy angels, this is talking about Lucifer right now, the influence of the holy angels seemed for a time to carry him with them as songs of praise ascended in melodious strains, swelled by thousands of glad voices, the spirit of evil seemed vanquished. Unutterable, unutterable love thrilled his entire being before the entrance of sin. That was Patriarchs and Prophets as well. And again, voice and speech and song. 
Then was the melody of heaven heard by mortal ears, and the heavenly choir swept back to heaven as they closed their ever memorable anthem. Again, an emphasis on the melody. Just moving on here. Music forms a part of God's worship in the courts above. And we should endeavor in our songs of praise to approach as nearly as possible to what? The harmony of the heavenly choirs. The proper training of the voice is an important feature in education and should not be neglected. Voice and speech and song, page 430. So over and over and over and over again, she says, look, when I heard it, she, she never once describes it in the terms that you find at the golden calf. It's always melody and harmony being primary. Now, just to touch on, uh, just to touch on dance for a little bit, switching gears just slightly. Miriam danced, David danced, Psalm 149, verse 3, 150, verse 4. It tells us to praise him with dance. Solomon said something very interesting. There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Now think that one through for a minute. If there is a time to dance, what does that also imply? That there's not a time to dance. If that is true, how can you tell what time it is? All right. How are you going to tell? If there is a time to dance and a time not to dance, there ought to be some way in which we can tell, assuming that the form of the dance is okay. Major assumption there. How can we tell what time it is? Well, dancing is usually done after a major victory. Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. You remember at the Red Sea? The Bible doesn't record them dancing in Egypt. But yet, when that Red Sea was parted and they were on the other side, Miriam then took up the timbrel and she danced. And there was nothing objectionable. There was no, God didn't, the Bible didn't say that God was displeased with that. But that was done after God then uh, uh, brought that victory in the Red Sea. Judges chapter 11 verse 34, this is talking about Jephthah. When he returned from his battle, he was met by his daughter with dance. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, 21, 11, 29, verse 5, you know what happened there. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, you have that classic mismatch between David and Goliath. And when David finally wins the battle, well, they're saying that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the women took up the dance and they sang that song. So they celebrated the victory of David over Goliath. That sounds reasonable that you would dance over something, uh, you know, when, when, when victory is won. Um, the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 30 verse 16, because David was away, they found the women and the children there. They took them, they took the spoils and they began to dance. But yet something interesting happened with the Amalekites. Uh, you see, because they were in dance and play mode and they didn't realize that David and his company were right upon them. And it's very hard to watch and pray when you're, when you're dancing and playing. It's kind of like when someone says, sleep with one eye open. Now, you're either awake or asleep. You know, it's not something you can do halfway. And if you're asleep and you know you're asleep, well, then you do the math. And, but the Amalekites only thought that the war was over. See, the devil wants to convince us that the battle is over. This is what dance does. It says, hey, the battle is over. 
And there's no need to watch. There's no need to be vigilant. There's no need to be on your guard because the victory has been won. Now, sure, in a sense, the victory has been won. But turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 for a minute. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 is one of my favorite chapters because in just 17 short verses, you have a complete history of the rebellion from its inception to its ultimate demise. And in the middle of the verse, you find a reference to Christ's victory over Satan. And so we're going to go to verse 10, Revelation chapter 12. In verse 10, and it says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. There was a casting down of Satan at the cross. Any last sympathy as you listened to the sermon last night, any, any sympathy that any of the angelic host had was completely gone. His warfare was now restricted to the earth. He could no longer make his case about God to the heavenly intelligences. There was a casting down at the cross. And it says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. But what about us? It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. Yes, there has been a casting down, and yes, the devil is a defeated foe. But that doesn't mean that you and I cannot be on our guards. Just like in the sermon this morning, the disciples couldn't cast them out. They couldn't cast the demon out. They were not on their guard. They were allowing these petty jealousies and selfishness to get in the way, and there was no power, and the enemy overcame them. And so when we introduce dance into the worship service today, it says, you know what? It's time to, it's time to dance and play, not watch and pray. And then we're not ready for the major onslaught that is going to come from the enemy. Also, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse four and th- uh, verses 4 and 13. That's a very interesting verse because Jeremiah was prophesying of, of the doom that would come. Uh, and he was encouraging his people to go out and meet the Babylonians. But he also prophesied of the restoration that would come after the 70 years as well. And he said, and it says in verse 4 and in verse 13, after God turns the captivity, yes, then there will be dancing and there will be joy and there will be celebration. But if we just apply some proper principles to that, our captivity has not been turned yet. And when our captivity uh, does get turned, then will be the time. Of course, we haven't addressed the form of the dance yet. Because the wise man said, well, if there's a time to dance, we've got to figure out when it's not a time to dance. When is it not a time to dance? Well, during a time of apostasy, like in Elijah's day, you remember the great showdown? He said, let's assemble on Mount Carmel and we'll figure out who the true God is. You can find this in 1 Kings chapter 18. And so he says, why don't you set up your altars? I'll set up my altar and the God that answers by fire will let him be the true God. And so, you know, the prophets of Baal were leaping and dancing and cutting themselves. And some people think that the more noise you have, the more the Holy Spirit is active. But yet there was no fire. That was the test, right? Isn't fire often a symbol of the Holy Spirit? So you had all this leaping and this dancing, but there wasn't any fire at all. 
And, and Elijah said, look, are you guys through? <laughs> it's almost evening. And he repaired the simple altar of God, offered a simple prayer, and that was it. Fire came down. God recognized that. Did you know that there's an Elijah in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 12. What was the work of Elijah back then? It was to call people back to the true worship of God. That's why God has raised up our church, to call people back to true principles of worship. Now, whenever you have an Elijah, you also have a Jezebel as well. Did you know that there's a Jezebel in the book of Revelation? Chapter, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. She's also there in Revelation chapter 17 as well. Now, who was the one that was doing the dancing in Elijah's day? Was it Elijah or the prophets of Baal? Now, if we follow the simple laws of type and anti-type, who should be the ones that are doing the dancing now? Should it be the antitypical Elijah that does, that's preaching the three angels' messages? Or should it be those that are comprised of the religious systems in Revelation 17? It's them. So let them do it. Also, dancing was not done on the Day of Atonement as well. And we live in the antitypical Day of Atonement. It was a time of solemn heart searching. It was a time of preparation. Notice this. I mentioned this quote the other day. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of, of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. After this quote, three times as the chapter ends, she says, watch and pray. Now, dancing focuses our attention exclusively on the cross. You know that the cross was one of the greatest battles that was ever fought. You read about it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus, single-handedly, against all the forces of darkness, won the victory in his humanity on the cross. Great battle. Great victory. And so... If dancing is done after a major victory, it usually doesn't point forward. It points to what's happened in the past. And the devil uses it as an ingenious way to keep us from focusing on where Christ is right now. That's the major temptation, is to focus on, some, on a place where God isn't. Isn't that what the religious leaders of Jesus were saying? You know, if we were alive in the days of the prophets, we wouldn't be doing that. Ah. You missed it, but you're doing it to, the, to, to me. And so if we don't follow where Jesus is in this sanctuary, we're going to miss the boat. Introducing praise dancing will place us in the same position as the Jews in the popular churches in 1843 and 1844. In other words, you know, when Jesus came, type had met anti-type, but you know what they kept doing? They kept offering up those same useless sacrifices. There was a time when that worked. But when type meant anti-type, you can't keep doing that. When it was time for Jesus to move from holy to most holy place, and you didn't follow him by faith into that heavenly sanctuary, into the most holy place, you offered up your prayer into a place where Satan now intercepts. 
dancing during a time of war can bring disastrous results. That's exactly what happened to the Amalekites. You see, the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 16 to 18, were convinced that the battle was over. And so what do you do when you capture spoil and the battle's over? Well, it says that they, they, they sang, they, they, they danced, they made merry, they were drunk. They were doing anything but watching and praying. And you know Jesus admonishes us before he comes not to be found doing those things. Because you're not going to be prepared and ready. It's hard to watch and pray when you dance and play. And so they didn't realize that David and his men were within a hundred yards of them. And when they gave the signal, that's it. Those men were not prepared to engage. And this is the type of environment the enemy wants to create for us before he begins his final onslaught. So that we'll be caught unprepared and unready. What about the Trojan? You, you know the story of the Trojan horse, right? What the Greeks couldn't gain by force, they gained by subtlety and, and strategy. <laughs> You know the word, strategy. And those Trojans brought the horse in. If you read some accounts, there, was a, there were actually some men that were saying, don't do this. This doesn't sound good. And those guys were either silenced or killed. And that horse was brought in. And the rest is history. Why? Because the Trojans were led to believe that the battle was over. And when the battle is over, you drop your guard. And it's hard to read the book of Revelation and not realize that you're in a battle and that you're in a war. You have all these opposites all throughout the book of Revelation. And the final battle has not been fought or won yet. It will be won when we're standing on the sea of glass and we've received victory over the beast and its mark and its image. That's when the battle will be won. Right now it's time to be vigilant. So how can the devil achieve victory over the remnant? easy by introducing this Christian rock music and packaging it in such a way that we need to win our young people and all the rest of the folk. Since dancing is done after a major battle, the subtle message is that the war between Babylon and Israel is over. Instead of watch and pray, it's dance and play. Now, just to make this a little more practical, um, these are some musical characteristics to look for. This is found in our own 1972 philosophy of music. This was put together at an annual council of the General Conference some years ago. And um, if you take these principles, you can Google, simply Google 1972 philosophy of music, you will come to this document here. And so what I would do is I would take the principles that I'm just about to, that I'm just about to uh, go through right now and then say, okay, Lord, uh, how can I line up my music, whatever, to these principles? So what we've tried to do up until this point is provide you some philosophical, theological rationale for why these principles are solid. So that you can answer the why question. Because I'm convinced if we can't answer the why question, somebody else more charismatic will come along and then we'll march to the beat of a duff, uh, uh, another drummer. The, the music should bring glory to God and assist us in acceptably worshiping Him. It should ennoble, uplift, and purify the Christian's thoughts, like Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says. The music should have a text which is in harmony with the scriptural teachings of the church. 
Of course, we can't have some text which talks about somebody dying, going to heaven, and how beautiful it is up there. The music should reveal a compatibility between the message conveyed by the words and the music, avoiding the mingling of the sacred and the profane. It should shun theatrical and prideful display. The music should give precedence to the message of the text, which should not be overpowered by the accompanying musical elements. Have you been in places like that sometimes? Where the music is blaring and you're wondering, and someone's singing up there and you're wondering, I wonder what they're saying. <laughs> the music should maintain a judicious balance of the emotional, intellectual, and spiritual elements. It should never compromise high principles of dignity and excellence in efforts to reach people just where they are. It should be appropriate for the occasion, the setting, and the audience for which it is intended. So sure, we're not all required, and I'm not suggesting that we all need to, that we all need to listen to hymns, all aspects, you know, as part of our entire musical diet. The Bible talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there are different, there's different music for different occasions. There's variety within the right framework, of course. Just like, you, like, just like in food, where you have a variety of foods within the proper framework. But, you know, I can't say, well, I'm Greek and I'm going to have souvlaki, which is pork shish kebab. That's often how we treat music. This is the music of my culture. Now, this, this statement here comes from the church manual, all right? This is in the church manual, this next statement. Total avoidance of rock and jazz rhythms and their related hybrids. Check it out in your church manual. It is there. So, we as a Seventh-day Adventist church need to make a decision. We either need to change our manual or change our theology. That's where we're at right now. So, if you're an administrator... You can stand on that. What I've simply been trying to do is provide theological justification for why we can stand on it. But that is in the church manual. Total avoidance of rock, jazz, and their related rhythm, uh, hybrid rhythms. The raucous style common to rock, the suggestive, sentimental, breathy, crooning style of the nightclub performer, and other distortions of the human voice should be avoided. The musicians will get this next one. Music should be avoided that is saturated with the 7th, 9th, 11th, and 13th chords, as well as other lush sonorities. Uh, when you think about the use of those chords, it's, you know, jazz and blues. They're not saying those chords are wrong. Listen. These chords, when used with restraint, produce beauty. But when used to excess, distract from the true spiritual quality of the text. You know, there was a time in music history where they thought the tritone was the devil's interval. The tritone is, uh, I wish I could reproduce it. It's C to F sharp, okay? And it's kind of, you know, the, the sound takes you aback a little bit. And so they avoided any, anything that had a tritone in it. There's nothing necessarily objectionable to the tritone. All right, we might... Da, da. Just below a perfect fifth. 
So avoid that interval. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that interval. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the 7th, 9th, 11th, 13th chords, okay? And by the way, most of you will never know if they are played. <laughs> All right? <laughs> if, they're, if they're being used in the right way. But uh, when they're being used in the wrong way, you kind of get the idea, hmm, that sounds a little jazzy or bluesy. <laughs> All right? Anything which calls undue attention to the performer, such as excessive, effective bodily movement or inappropriate dress, should find no place in witnessing. Great care should be exercised to avoid excessive instrumental and vocal amplification. When amplifying music, there should be a sensitivity to the spiritual needs of those giving the witness and of those who are to receive it. The primary objective of all sacred music should be to exalt Christ rather than to exalt the musician or provide entertainment. Okay, I guess that's about the end of our presentation. So, um, <laughs> forgot to put the end slide there to show me when I'm supposed to end. But uh, it, it's pretty much time for some questions if some, of you have, if some of you have questions. And so what I've tried to do here is just switch the foundation to the sanctuary and say, okay, the sanctuary is associated with the string accompaniment. If you're having string accompaniment, it means that the, 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 the biblical philosophy of music is, is uh, melody and harmony as dominant as opposed to the golden calf foundation where you have syncopated rhythms as dominant. So that's kind of what we've been trying to do. And our hope and prayer is that you might look up these principles and that you might compare them. I mean, if you're, if, if, if you're a young person, if you're, if you're a parent, if you're an administrator at a school or an elder in your church or the pastor, take these things. Because if you, and, and look at the message uh, that was preached about Hezekiah. When he first began with the cleansing of the sanctuary and then decided to move in the right direction, there were so many benefits that were reaped in the church back then, and God wants to reproduce that today, and he can, and he will, if we will allow him to. Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. I ask, Father, that you will continue in light, to enlighten us by your Spirit. Thank you for the rich treasure that you've given to us in our message. And may our worship be reflective of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.